Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Our guest today is Dan Muller. He's an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Maryland and author of the new book, Governing Least, A New England Libertarianism. Welcome to Free Thoughts. Thanks. It's good to be here. Why New England? It's funny. There are these figures in the New England literary tradition, especially Emerson and Thoreau, whom I've always enjoyed reading, and they don't seem to play much of a role in the mainstream discussion of libertarianism. And I thought that there are these ideas that motivate libertarianism in a way that's different from what you find in more traditional figures. So in particular, you find this emphasis, of course, on self-reliance in the famous essay from Emerson. But also, if you read through Walden, which I'm a big fan of, you find this emphasis on both self-reliance and a corresponding notion that you should be reluctant to shift your misfortunes under onto other people, um, the conditions under which you should be willing to shift your misfortunes, your burdens onto others, demand that others uh, take up the slack for you are few and far between. And that way of approaching libertarianism strikes me as interestingly different from more traditional figures. Um, well, in that regard, the um, can we? How much can we learn? So yeah, those are like manners. I mean, in some they're related to manners and social mores and things like this. But can we really derive political conclusions from manners and social mores? Well, we draw our inspiration. So to be clear, I'm not attempting to attach, you know, detailed doctrines of contemporary libertarianism to Walden and Thoreau. That would be sort of anachronistic. And in fact, if you're a libertarian, libertarians face, so to speak, in two different directions. In one direction, they're for limited government, but they're also for government. Uh, so they are not anarchists. And when you read Thoreau, you start to worry uh, after a little while that maybe there's too much anarchy there for the libertarian's taste. So the point is to draw inspiration uh, from this idea of an aversion to burden shifting and kind of develop that moral framework. And, and maybe the thing to do is to just contrast it with these other figures. So that's that's perhaps the main thing I was trying to do in dubbing it New England libertarianism. Can we go a bit more into what you mean by burden shifting? Because there's there's some instances where depending on what you mean, it seems fine. Like to some extent, just living in a society means we, we're interacting with each other. We're, we're in relationships. We're embedded in relationships with people where it's – it's at least expected that they take on some of our burdens. We we also, you know, start off um, the dependent rational animals phrase. Like we start off basically being a burden to others. So what what specifically does it mean to shift burdens, and what kind of burdens are the ones you're concerned about? Yeah. So I, the way I think of this is in terms of the conditions under which you are assuming one another's burdens. So the idea isn't some uh, ridiculous idea of, you know, atoms floating in the void who have no dependencies or anything, which is often the sort of ridiculous straw man portrait you get of, of libertarianism. So it's important to acknowledge um, the many kinds of personal relationships where it's expected that you would take up other burdens. I would be horrified if some libertarian, for instance, were unwilling to pitch in for a colleague or a friend or much, much less a lover or a spouse, of course. Um, but those are uh, voluntary relationships um, or dependencies that are taken up in a voluntary way. You uh, decide to have a child with your partner or something like that. And those seem quite different from cases where you insist by ultimately force that others take up your burdens and those seem extremely important. So uh, I often emphasize the role of reason and persuasion in the book and that's where I think that fits in. So it's fine to 
try and enter into a voluntary relationships with other people. It's fine to persuade them that they have a that they ought to go help others or take up their burdens. Uh, shame, I think, is <laughs> is great. <laughs> Persuading people they should feel ashamed for not taking up other people's burdens. Those are all fair game. What doesn't strike me as fair game is going up to you know the strangers on your 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 block and demanding uh, and and you know using force against them in order to get them to take up your burdens. That's the contrast. What about luck in this? Uh if you, you I, I guess using force is the is the big difference, and we can get into what that means. But uh, you could say, "Hey, I'm out of my job, and I'm down on my luck." And the New England sensibility is: you go and you ask people, "Hey, can you pitch in, you know, so I can help out?" Um, but whether or not you can steal from them. Well, we have cases like Jean Valjean, who we all feel is a mm -hmm. is a even though he stole a loaf of bread, it was to save save his uh, dying sister. I think it was. So, so you know, does it actually apply? And, and then the secondary question is: is how much does it matter that the government here? I mean, is it is it just a group group of people, or is it something more when it applies force? Yeah. Um, well. As far as luck goes, I, I don't think that bad luck can endow you with an authority to use force that otherwise you would not be endowed with. So my view is it's still ask nicely uh, when you're when you're down on your luck. Uh, I don't think the mere fact that, you know, it was an unlucky car crash or something that wiped you out, that put you in this position can alter the authority that you get to exert over other people. Um, the point about the, the more extreme cases where you're really in huge trouble, uh, starvation is at stake or something, um, Jean Valjean, uh, the, the way I think of this is that there are uh, thresholds that need to be reached before you are permitted to um, exercise that kind of force over other people. And I do think that you ultimately can, and this is part of what I uh, find interesting in these New England thinkers, is that they're less extreme than some more familiar figures in this respect. So if you read philosophical figures like Robert Nozick or Murray Rothbard, and you kind of, you know, do your Talmudic, you know, examination, what you tend to find is it, it looks a lot like they're relying on a very strong view of individual rights that are kind of insuperable and that would apply even in the kind of, you know, your, your kid is starving type cases. Or you can't cut off someone's – or you can't take two cents from them to save the world from right, right. an asteroid, right? I mean that's the that's – Right. And you don't find that sort of thing. We're in, two cents short of the asteroid killing <laughs> nuclear weapon and we have to steal it from Robert Nozick. Right. Uh, so those of us can seem appealing in a way because you think you're kind of cloaking yourself in this like – <laughs> invincible shield, but the the corresponding drawback is that the the moral picture that underlies it seems extreme and less attractive. And so, part of what I'm concerned to do in the book is to sketch uh, what happens when you relax those assumptions when you're a little less extreme. So, let's say that I am allowed to steal from people under certain conditions. Well, what then? I don't think that's the end of the story. There's more to say there. So, one possible objection I can imagine to the the burden shifting, or at least the it's wrong in most cases to use force to shift your burdens is the kind of burdens that you're interested in for, through most of this book are welfare state. Mm -hmm. um, but we when – as citizens, there's a social contract of sorts in which we have implicitly or explicitly agreed to have burdens shifted onto us in certain ways or to at least pay for the helping of the burdens of others. 
And so if that agreement exists, then it's not so much you using force to shift a burden onto me so much as you using force to compel me to like honor a promise that I made. Yeah, so I'm not excited about this vision of the supposed social contract. <laughs> In general, I don't think it's true. And, and to this extent, I, I'm sympathetic to uh, people who tend toward anarchism. I, I don't think that in general it's true that we can get together and say, here's three of us together. Let's raise our hand if we can take, you know, Trevor's stuff. That's, that's not how it works. Um, and in the kinds of cases we're thinking of here, What's, what's really happening is various democratic majorities are voting in favor of doing various stuff. But although, of course, I respect in some sense the political authority of majorities, majorities famously are not <laughs> bound to do the right thing. And so when majorities vote for stuff and then announce, hey, we've all decided that we're going to take your stuff and put it to ends we've decided are the good ends, you can't infer from that that that's morally permissible. Um, I find one of the more fascinating concepts in your book is so we have – you try and you know, relax a little bit of these absolute rights and talk about the thresholds and what are the actual situations here? I mean there's necessity as we talked about Jean Valjean and then there's um, can I steal from you to uh, get a tutor for my kid? Those should be looked at as different points, which I make this point. I've made this point all the time. It seemed like Rothbard thought that that all harm was equally. I think he thought that because he couldn't draw a line. Um, and you don't seem very concerned with that, right? Because you, you say you shine a laser pointer at someone versus punching them in the arm. They're both violations of your, your bodily autonomy in some sense. And how would you draw the line? Uh, but you point out that even if you let someone st- steal from you for a necessity purpose or one of these things, it's part inherent in it is not that it's a good thing you did, but there's a residual element that you, you now owe them something. It's like, so what, so now that you've overridden the right, let's call it a right, um, there's residual obligations in a case of emergency. You list them like restitution that you get to go in and use them. We have to pay compensation again, pay, uh, sympathy that you should at least not spike the ball, I guess, to, to some extent. Uh, you know, responsibility, uh, forward looking, you can foresee that some action will put you in a f- similar position in the future. This very interesting observation, which sort of says that it's, it's acknowledged to be wrong, even when it was necessary. Yeah. So I find these nuances quite interesting. I didn't start off as a political philosopher. I started off as a moral philosopher. And so what drew me to someone like Nozick was the kind of interesting moral foundations. And as you point out, if you acknowledge that um, people's defeasible rights can be overridden and that you don't cloak yourself in this kind of invincible mantle of you can never touch me no matter what, if you acknowledge that's ridiculous, you can shove people out of the way to save people from traffic and so on, uh, the the thing I'm trying to work out there in the book is, well, what's left over? And what's striking to me is because people like Nozick or Rothbard made these initial claims that were so strong, what would happen is people would just knock them down by pointing out how implausible they seemed as moral claims. And then they would just announce, we're done here. And so I've always found it sort of depressing that people just 
that there was this kind of dynamic where people would just declare that the discussion was over. Uh, and as you allude to, I just think there's much more to discuss. And um, my gosh, uh, I, I view this as all at a very early stage. People should work much harder to try and uh, elucidate all this. Uh, and as you say, some of the things you're trying to work out, what are some of these things? If I fall on hard times and, okay, I'm not allowed to just grab my neighbor's stuff, um, if it's a emergency case that breaches a certain threshold, there's imminent danger to life and limb, so then perhaps I am. What What is owed to my neighbor? Yeah, I do think things like restitution, uh, compensation are the sorts of things you should be talking about. And and the, the, the thing you said about spiking the ball, I, I view that as, in, in some ways, it's kind of softer and mushier, but also more important, I think. You don't view these as entitlements. You, you view these as sort of a tragic necessity that you are, you know, impinging upon those around you and you should have this attitude of, ah, oh, this is a terrible thing and I'm going to try and make this good and so on, which is, of course, different from how you feel about um, an expansive welfare state. Usually. Where do rights come from? I mean, so if you've, you've jettisoned the absolute of Nozick and Rothbard, but there's got to be something mm -hmm. supporting them. So in this in this book, one thing I try and do is, is sort of start at a reasonable place. So some people who who um, some classic authors they try and just start with nothing and then first it, you in the beginning you, was the word exactly and can, I get to, can i get to libertarianism <laughs> that's right that? and by the way here's my three-page refutation of utilitarianism yeah. And, yeah. and on and on and that's that's not my approach uh perhaps consistent with the overall modesty of the program <laughs> i don't think that's really what you want to do in a book so i try and start with um common sense views of morality, views that would be taken as pedestrian if you just mention them in any other context. So forget about, oh my God, we're arguing our way towards scary libertarianism or something. It's just you and me and we're hanging out in a shop and we're just chatting about everyday stuff in the newspaper. Did you hear about this guy or something? I try and take views that more or less are, are like that and use them as premises to try and get to the conclusion. Of course, you know, there are then these much, much deeper questions about the nature of morality and so on. I don't say much about them, and I'm not sure I have much deeper things to say about them than, you know, you would find in Immanuel Kant or elsewhere. But I don't think of that as a special problem that's triggered by thinking about libertarianism. It's it's just a feature of trying to be more modest and not solve all the problems in one book. And on restitution, say, as a way to deal with sometimes rights needing to be overridden to some degree. How far does that go? I mean, is there is there a point where they become kind of Nozickian side constraints? Or can I – if I can tell a sufficiently good story and provide a sufficient level of restitution, then the fuzziness can go all the way down? What do you mean by all the way down? Um, do you mean all the way down historically? No, I mean in terms of like they um, – the severity of the rights violation. Ah, okay. Yes. Yeah, so picture a kind of uh, curve in which you're trying to chart, you know, uh, the severity of the thing that they're doing and then the conditions under which you, you, you could do that. Uh, you, you could undertake these violations. Um, uh, what does that look like? Uh, maybe it's asymptotic. So if I ask myself, what would it take for me to be entitled to torture you? Uh, you know, maybe it would be the downfall of the world or something like that. So, uh, there's an interesting question about exactly how you should sort of graph, graph that. And I accept that, um, uh, it, it might be sort of near asymptotic for some of these kinds of harms. 
The, the important thing, obviously, is just to acknowledge, oh, my God, there's just this vast difference between pinching people and torturing them, and it's just insane. It's just crazy that a lot of political philosophy doesn't reflect that. <laughs> yes. My, I will start with my crazy premise, premise one, <laughs> pinching and torturing are not the same thing. Yep, exactly. On, exactly. Yes. <laughs> but I think today, um, a lot of people, especially today, um, a lot of people would invoke – not so much the justness of stealing or they would not justify stealing except for to say you can steal unjustly acquired property. Um, and so you have to, you know, the, the, the basic syllogism is it's wrong to steal property that belongs to another to help yourself out. You know, even if the state is the mechanism by which you do that, think of great lines in the book about like layers of bureaucracy that insulate you from what's actually going on. Um, and then, you know, then I did this. Therefore, the welfare, the welfare state takes property from justly, justly earned property. Therefore, the welfare state, it could be one. But the second premise was the one I think would today, especially since the you didn't build that era kind of came into being. And, and I think that Obama and, and now every Democrat candidate that took that has some level of articulating roles, putting it into a popular bumper sticker slogan. Um, and so therefore none of these things actually apply. Right. So I think this is interesting. Uh, so the, the thing that we just explored earlier is something that is, you know, intellectually important and in a philosophy seminar, you know, I might never even get out of there alive. People would just be obsessed with that. But you're, I think you're right to point out that when when people who aren't trying to block a philosophical thesis take this up and just explore their grounds for disagreement, it's rare that they accept this New Englandy point and then say, haha, but we are in this position where we are compelled to take people's rightfully held stuff that they admittedly are entitled to. It's just that we have to, et cetera, et cetera. It's much more likely that they insist that you never were entitled to the stuff that they they wish to appropriate in the first place. If nothing else, that just sounds easier to explain to people. It's more persuasive. You mobilize democratic majorities by saying things like the system is rigged and, you know, evil people are plotting against you and they've, you know, there's some zero-sum story about how they got their hands on the goodies and you didn't get your fair share and so It on. was yours to begin with all time. <laughs> You're much more likely to get that sort of story. Uh, and I, I do have something to say about that in the book as, as well. Um, I, unsurprisingly, I tend to find their stories, uh, Un unconvincing um, in most modern service economies. It's unlikely that what's happening is there's a zero-sum game and one group of citizens screwed you over and rigged the system against you and so on and so forth. Of course, that could happen, but um, I rarely find those those stories plausible now. But would it, would it actually be that it'd be interesting if you said, okay, we do find a situation where I will admit Due to historical factual background, this whole group of people did unjustly acquire their wealth. I'm not sure it actually still follows that the welfare state would come from that, at least in the at least in the way we currently have it. It would might be we take all their money and make a bunch of parks out of it or something, or, or put it invested in museums or something like that. Right. Uh, the exact consequence would be uh, sort of interesting to contemplate, but it might be like a one-off transfer scheme or something like that. Uh, if you are an agrarian society and, you know, the aristocrats have sort of appropriated all the land and consigned a serf class to work them as their semi-slaves or something, you might think land redistribution is a sort of reasonable approach or something like that. But, uh, yeah, it's true 
that the welfare state doesn't follow from that. That if you think about it, the conditions under which a welfare state is likely to arise, in which there's a lot of wealth, you're in a sophisticated industrial economy, those are rarely the kinds where that sort of thing will have happened. That you're more likely to encounter those in sort of historical agrarian type situations. I think. If if it's not okay to shift existing like your burdens in your possession, I don't know, it makes sense to speak of them in your possession, but burdens that have affixed to you to someone else, um, is it? Different and not okay also to create burdens on others. And I'm, I'm thinking of this in the context of justifying private property because one of the arguments against private property from people on the left, especially zero-sum private property like land and natural resources and so on, is that by me mixing my labor with them and you know taking cordoning them off, putting my fence around it, um, I'm excluding others, which is in a sense creating burdens on them. Yeah, there's a couple of things to say about that. So one is that um, there's of course this familiar question of whether um, in appropriating stuff you are making others worse off or not, and there's kind of a long tradition of sort of bickering over that. And under what conditions is that true or not? There's this famous phrase associated with Locke, the Lockean proviso, in which you're supposed to you're not supposed to appropriate in a way that doesn't leave others. And now we come to the key phrase that I often get wrong, and I'm feeling nervous, but it's. <laughs> Enough and as good, if I recall. <laughs> I'm always tempted to say as much and as good, and then I'm angrily corrected by a libertarian. So enough and as good. So there's this tradition of trying to work out the conditions under which you are allowed to appropriate. And maybe the important thing to flag is just don't be naive about that. It might be much better for others that productive people appropriate and then do something useful with it. But uh, there's also just this much deeper question, I think, of whether this Lockean stuff is just wildly over-discussed and over-applied. Um, the stuff about Locke and appropriation has to do with initial acquisition of goods and, and physical resources. And there's, of course, the question of, well, how relevant is that today in a service economy and so on? And um, I mean, it's, well, yes, but the this question of bad initial acquisition can paint down the line. It's It kind of reminds you, we can get to obviously like slavery and reparations, but um, in the Oklahoma land rush, it's uh, we had the Sooners, I'm a big Oklahoma Sooner fan, and they were people who cheated. The idea was you'd all get on the line and then literally just run out and grab your land, right? And that's It's amazing that that once actually happened. But but And they, they cheated over the line and, and created homesteads beforehand. And then you could be like, well, you didn't follow the rules. And then the, all the subsequent owners, uh, you know, successors and in interest, they all are tainted by your initial theft. Should we just sort of not you know, care about that and be like, you know, too late? <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on where you are. So if it's say, you know, call that Gen 1 and now we get to Gen 2, that looks different from Gen 1000. And if you reach a point where what people have in their bank accounts is just – there's almost no connection to the land that they occupy. And if you ask them to leave, they would just say, sure, I'll leave. It won't make any difference to me at all. I'm happy to just give away my, you know, one, one half acre in LA or something and, and just go somewhere else. Um, at that point, it makes much less sense, of course. Uh, if you think that the reason most people end up with what they do, and this, of course, isn't, uh, true of everyone, but if you think that it's broadly true that in a society like ours or Japan or other advanced economies, the reason there are 
uh, wealthy has to do with uh, services that they provide and kind of having an advanced economy, it'll seem less plausible to think we should worry deeply about patches of land and what was done on them hundreds or thousands of years ago, however regrettable. You mentioned we, – we talked about luck a little bit in terms of accidents or bad instances of luck. Um, what about the Rawlsian view of luck? So, I mean which is kind of the luck of your your initial you know initial faculties and skills and skill set which is no, which acquired through no fault of your own and therefore the products of those um as opposed to someone so you so you're born with legs someone is born without legs it's neither person's fault uh that that you have legs or don't have legs is that create a, a situation for possible just acquisition of property from these people yeah, so there are these inequalities and in endowments uh, apart from the resources they can get their hands on, which we were talking about a moment earlier. And the, the question you have to ask yourself there is my misfortune in not being gifted in certain ways relative to my circumstances, uh, does that endow me with moral authority to commandeer your stuff? And um, I, I find that sort of hard to take terribly seriously. Um one one important thing to to consider here is just the wide range of endowments that count. People tend to think of this very narrowly, but it's actually it's much broader than most people appreciate. So, if you have some weird capacity to attract people's attention on YouTube, or you're a really great dancer, or you have great gastronomic ability, these are all things that can uh, make you fabulously rich. Who's that? Um this is the number one YouTube earner, some kid who opens up toys. Yeah. So. He was like six years old. And like, and, and his parents, I mean, they created him, but they didn't give him like, I guess they're, they're responsible for his genetic code, but they're making a ton of money from this kid who just opens up toys. Yes. There's an endowment that Rawls did not think about. Yes. <laughs> or, or by extension, manipulating your children into uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. doing productive stuff on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but my point there is that people tend to think of it as there's this one thing, like, I don't know, maybe they're vaguely thinking of intelligence or something, uh, in the background. And then they think it's this great shame that you weren't given, you know, the full quotient or something like that. That's the wrong way to look at it. There's just this vast panoply of skills. In, in the academy, it's sort of especially salient, even though you know, being smart really helps in the academy. But there's just this vast, weird array of talents that can enable you to be successful. And so what you really have to end up saying is that just the random vicissitudes of your strange endowments and, you know, ability to dance or flop around on YouTube or something matched with these weird, you know, circumstances that you may find yourself in, uh, that that endows you with the right to put your hands on other people's stuff. And I don't, uh, I don't see the case for that. It, it occurs to me as we're, we're having this conversation that it, it brings up, um, one of the errors that I think people make about libertarianism, um, and and you you touched on this at the beginning, um, is what we're talking about right here is when is it okay to use force to take from people who you to shift your burdens directly? So when is it okay in this use state force to do this? Um, but the conversation could end up sounding like so if I were an unsympathetic person listening to this conversation and I had forgotten about the qualifier you made at the beginning of the podcast the conversation could sound like you saying like look we shouldn't care about this like if luck luck you know yes it matters in your life but I shouldn't care about it because I'm saying that you don't have a right to make any claims on me um and 
and that that's that's a mistake about the way that I mean, it's a mistake about the argument that you're making, but it's also something a lot of libertarians, I think, in our rhetoric sometimes talk like that's in fact the case. That like if if X is not a rights violation, then X is a hundred percent permissible and not morally blameworthy. Um, when in fact that's not the case at all, and so that I guess keeping that line in mind. Yeah, I would say I would say two things about that. So. It, it is true that you have all these obligations to to people that um, might not result in them having the authority to kind of force you to do anything, right? But that doesn't mean that watching people go hungry is is, is great. Um, and of course, many of these arguments will be played out across a view of how likely it is that a society of individuals cooperating. Um, are likely to do well or poorly in aggregate. And of course, if libertarians tend to think that that works out relatively well and they think the reasons why it works out well have more to do with these features of the market and individuals exhibiting their talents and so on than, than anything else. Um, on the point though of whether the mere fact that uh, you've fallen on hard times and you've had bad luck, whether that should command your moral attention, uh, even there, I think it's, it's worth pausing because I think you should distinguish cases from – or cases in which bad luck has left you destitute and hungry, in which the absolute quality of your life is terrible from one in which bad luck has made you less capable of doing as well as other people. And in places like where we are as opposed to other parts of the world, I think you do see a shift more toward the latter. So it's not that the Bernie Sanders of the world are emphasizing – the horror of children going hungry, and there are. Children. He did say something ridiculous last debate, like the highest poverty child poverty rate in the world, or something. He always is trying to play that up, and that's just one of the most ridiculous things I've ever quoted. But he is trying to play that up, right? Well, and to be sure, there are people who go hungry in the United States, and it's no joke, and everyone should take that seriously. Libertarians more than more than anyone. But he's also trying to get like teachers a raise and just like normal people. Yes, but a raise. but I think when people are focused on inequality, pure inequality, that's quite different and I'm not actually sure that you should go along with uh, the sense of moral outrage of pure inequality as a result of bad luck. Um, I have family members who do entrepreneurial stuff and they get more money than public teachers do. Uh, you know, should anyone in the world shed a tear for me? Oh my God, no, right? I'm doing fine. I'm going to eat a tasty lasagna tonight. Everything's fine. Uh, no one should have any sympathy for me whatsoever. And yet, absurdly, if you really focused on pure inequality and you thought about inequality, particularly as an outcome of bad luck um, in terms of your skills, preferences, and so on, you would absurdly think that that gap was was morally deeply significant. But it, speaking in the first person, it, it just isn't. Uh, there, there are people who are in absolute terms hungry. They deserve our sympathy. But those who are you know, on the bottom end of an inequality may not be. So a lot of what we've been discussing uh, is, kind of reminds me uh, um, – to some extent, of my former professor Michael Humer, who was actually was that I did philosophy degree at Boulder, as did Aaron. Um, although Aaron did not have Professor Humer, but he uh, this idea of you know using the moral intuitions and and you know if, if this isn't wrong in this situation or if this isn't wrong, why is this okay here? We don't live in a libertarian world. Uh, we actually live in a world where pretty much everywhere. Uh, there are states that do this stuff, and most people think it's okay. Um, 
And, you know, we're around here being like, you know, why are you so weird to believe in the state? And the actual looking at the numbers, really, we're the weirdos. Um, so why doesn't the world intuition of everyone who believes in the state and lets it happen uh, and says, you know, this is totally fine. Uh, why doesn't why isn't that the thing we should be paying attention to and not thinking, well, maybe we're we're the weirdos here? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, arguments move forwards and backwards. So you start with your premises and go to your conclusion, but then some people look at the conclusion and say, no way, and then they roll backwards and say, I guess I made a wrong assumption somewhere. So one way to think about this is I'm trying to persuade people, look, let's start with some moral premises and I talk about our sort of everyday moral beliefs and then I, you know, out pops some version of libertarianism at the other end and it's a completely reasonable and logical question to ask, well, wait, why can't I just do it the other way around and say, and say, when I look at society, it seems to be working kind of good and if, to the extent we need improvements, it's in, in the direction of, you know, more state intervention or something and thus you've gone wrong somewhere. And I actually don't have a problem with that. If, if we're honest about it and we acknowledge that that's what's happening. So if what happens is you think after our whatever hundred year experience of the welfare state in a mass society, clearly that is just this bedrock that no one could ever reject. And on the basis of that, you go on to acknowledge an inconsistency with our everyday moral beliefs about how you treat your friends and neighbors. And you say, I guess that stuff's wrong and we should be utilitarians and do all the crazy stuff utilitarians. Uh, so you're saying <laughs> not if, just if you, towards. So they can go and steal from your neighbors. You just <laughs> yes. Uh, so look, if they infer from this, clearly we should be utilitarians. And if my neighbor could derive greater value from my television than I could, then he's morally entitled to it. All the more power to them in a way or to be more serious, I think that would be clarifying. Um, but that's not what happens. It's, it's not that people do that. What they try and do is have it both ways and that's the part that I'm resisting. The part where you both hold on to the thing about comfortable views about the status quo and the welfare state and so on and you deny that there's any conflict there with kind of garden variety moral beliefs. But to ask an alternate version of Trevor's question, why isn't belief that redistribution is okay when it's the result of a democratic process and enforced by, you know, an elected state one of our moral premises? Like it's that seems to be just something people think like so we we're frankly like we're frequently, you know, you need to hold the state to the same standards, just people. Why do they get to act? But lots of people it just seems have a moral intuition that it just is different. When it's the state, so why why are you why do you get to exclude that moral premise from your baseline set of common sense ones? Well, again, I don't. I, I view the thing that you just said as another way of saying, um, look at the status quo. Isn't it pretty good? How could that be wrong? And what I try and do in the book is show that that does just produce this conflict with ordinary moral beliefs that you have. Um, you know, pinpointing where that goes off the rails, you know, that's, that's something where you have to have a discussion with someone and see where exactly that's, that's happening. But that, that is my view. Um, if you ask yourself, you know, why is it that people find the status quo uh, that is everywhere all around them accepted as the reasonable status quo? Why do they find that, um, sort of, uh, fine. That that question sort of answers itself. Um, By uh, definition, it's uh, if you're you know you grow up on your mother's knee and are just told this is how it works. You can be taught to think almost any social system is is fine, of course. And if you step kind of one step back in abstraction, if you ask yourself why is it that 
once there's any wealth at all around to redistribute, why is it that democratic majorities find themselves attracted to various moralized arguments for engaging in those redistributions? Uh, that, that doesn't seem shocking either once you pose the question that way. Uh, why would people find that attractive or exciting? It seems almost inevitable to me. That's slavery is the one that obviously comes to mind. A lot of people thought that was okay. Yeah. At, at the risk of a slight <clears throat> tangent, because you've made dismissive remarks towards utilitarianism oh. a bit earlier, um, and and I just from my experience talking with young libertarians, like especially ones who come from economics departments, like utilitarianism is the like obviously why is this true? Like this is obviously this is the case, and anyone who would posit anything different. Our is colleague just Jeff Myron is a very big believer. Not in this. not a fan <laughs> of efficiency. You have. Uh, I there's two appendix in this book that I enjoyed immensely, um, and so I just want to ask about the first one, which is why is utilitarianism self-deception? Well, so I think there's a serious question to be asked here. First, distinguish utilitarianisms that are self-effacing, where you're just trying to make a fancy philosophical point about here's where I think morality comes from. And you're not urging us to do anything crazy. You're just saying the reason why we have norms against stealing are because, and then you tell some story. You get that kind of story from figures like Hume or Sidgwick or something like that. But then there's the revisionist version where you're saying we just follow utilitarian logic wherever it leads. And if that means we you know, do crazy things and kill people or something, then that's what we do. And uh, although now I've put this so pejoratively, I feel I feel <laughs> bad. But um, going casting it as following the utilitarian logic where it leads, you might associate that with someone like Peter Singer, for instance, uh, who famously does have controversial views that have gotten him in, in, in hot water. Um, if you then focus on the revisionist kind, which is the kind we care about here. Um, then there's the question of why do so few utilitarians exhibit much utilitarianism? And that question I think utilitarians don't face up to enough. To the extent they do, they face up to the easy part, which is why don't they give more to charity or something? Why don't they do even more nice stuff to people? And there I think we should cut them some slack because we're flawed creatures and none of us live up to our ideals fully. But it's the other part of utilitarianism where it really is striking, where they don't do the nasty stuff – that utilitarianism at least appears to call for. So it appears that utilitarianism would favor stealing uh, your grandma's money to give it to more worthy orphans or some, stuff like that. There's a long you know, tradition of going through these cases. And they can claim that in each instance, well, it just works out that the utilitarian calculus tells you not to because of some complicated network of effects or something. But so the first time you hear that, you kind of nod your head and say, Okay. But then <laughs> when, when you've heard it like the 500th time and it turns out that this gets them off the hook of ever exhibiting any unpopular nasty utilitarianism, then you start to worry that hmm, maybe it's a kind of self-deception in the same sense that my students sometimes announce that they've become Buddhists over the summer or something and then you, it quickly emerges that this <laughs> what really happened is they they, they sort of – find it hard to reject a certain form of reasoning uh, when they when they 
consider an ideal. It has a kind of attraction. They feel the desire to affirm it. But uh, whether they actually accept it as a belief, whether they take it as a premise for their reasoning and as a basis for action, that's another matter. And I at least find it very suggestive that you see so little utilitarianism among utilitarians. <laughs> so in the, in the face of a non-libertarian world with – Filled with non-libertarians, are just they're just everywhere. Um, I mean, you see them all over the place. It's crazy. Uh, um, but you know, it, it, I mean, obviously, this this is an exceptionally good libertarian philosophy book. I, I rec highly recommend it. But are you throwing a bomb into a world that is not prepared? Like, if they, if if everyone, you know, you know, we got all these you know, welfare state that that can't be taken away. We got all these things, you know, overnight at least. Or, I mean, is this is this Constructive. Are you being constructive, Dan? Well, let me. This <laughs> takes me back to like ninth grade. Where yeah, exactly. the, the question is definitely no. Um, uh, yeah, let me say a few things about that. So the, the last chapter is about how utopian you should be in your political philosophy. Um, you can think of this as a sort of contrast. You can either be utopian and kind of dream big or you can be a kind of gritty realist and you don't stray much from the current realities because, bah, what a, you know, we'll ne we're never going to get there anyway and you're just, you know, it's pie in the sky. Um, so my feeling there is you should be utopian about some things. You should be utopian about trying to change people's minds. Uh, you should be utopian. You know, maybe this is the uh, ivory tower in me. You should be utopian about, you know, reason and persuasion and trying to Persuade your fellow citizens. You have a duty to try and persuade them and convince them. Um, you shouldn't be utopian about people, uh, about how quickly you can change things. You shouldn't be utopian about whether smashing things overnight is a good idea. You so would you push the button? Right. So this brings to mind the, the I think it's the Murray, Murray, Murray Rothbard question about would you press the button, which is always a good question for anyone's views about anything. Uh, Communist, and, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. And also just a good cocktail question. <laughs> I, I, I recommend it. So the question is, do you press a big red button that would implement libertarian or communism, whatever philosophy, tomorrow? Uh, and as I argue in the last chapter, the answer is no. I, I don't think you should. So I'm not a, uh, a radical libertarian in that sense. And I part company with people like Mary Rothbard. And this again comes back to this question of – do you think of yourself as having these kind of absolute rights that can never be violated and thus we can't tolerate a single hour of, you know, seeing them, you know, oh my God, if the welfare state wants my taxes, can I, is that an intolerable injustice? I just can't, you know, Brooke. And I don't view it that way. And so I think if this is more a long-term project, look, it's only very recently in the grand scheme of things that there was enough wealth and that there was, uh, um, uh, political apparatus for people to argue about how it should be distributed and to make arguments and convince people about norms about how to deal with that. I see us as sort of early in the game when it comes to that in the grand scheme of things. And so we should try and persuade people uh, of our views. Uh, and of course, there are other there, there are at least small bore cases where libertarian views are taken seriously or the, the fights are winnable. And so you should maybe distinguish these kind of grand questions from the smaller questions. Just to take a tiny example uh, from the daily newspapers, there are these debates about should we get rid of gifted programs in schools because they're exclusionary. And it's like textbook fodder for libertarians to make the case to their neighbors about. And those those kinds of those are things people are open to hearing and listening to. And you know, so pick your battles. 
Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, you can find our Free Thoughts discussion group on Facebook or on Reddit at r slash freethoughtspodcast. You can follow us on Twitter at freethoughtspod. As always, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.